We have um, a code here for the substance involved. I'll just take my glasses off to read it. Uh, it's heroin, H is for heroin, D for Dilaudid, O for down or an unknown opiate, 145 down, 150 down, 152 down, 221 down, 225 down, 306, Coke. I'm Garth Mullins, this is Crackdown. Episode 3, Unsanctioned. There's a little room in downtown Vancouver. Ugly yellow and white linoleum floors. Space for maybe half a dozen people. A couple of stainless steel tables along the walls. It doesn't look like much. But the story of this room is really important. It shows us how we can win. Do you mind hanging out with me while you do this? Is that okay, or will I be bothering you? Um, no, you won't be bothering me. This is Sheffy. Sheffy works at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or Vandu for short. His job is to hang out in the hallway just outside of this room. He watches as people use their drugs. And if they start to overdose, he's got an oxygen tank and some naloxone. He knows first aid. He can save their lives. But right now, Sheffy's shift is just ending. So he pulls out a little cooker and pours in some orange-colored powder. Yeah, there's all different colors now. There's like a... Purple pebbles yesterday yeah, or whatever. There's yellow, there's orange. And uh, they're just mixing food coloring in with the caffeine and that, and then the fentanyl. Uh, and I'm just going to get a shot ready for myself here. Sheffy turns to Kevin, the guy who's taking the next shift. But I, I got to get someone to do it for me. Will you hit me? Yeah, I guess. I know, it's fucking new power. You want to get a jug of me? He's got a jug me, so you get to see it. Jugging means to inject into your neck, into the jugular vein. Some people like to do this because they want the drugs to hit faster. Others do it because they've blown out all their veins from repeated injections, like I have. My veins are fucked. You got orange, I'm jealous. See, and I, I flagged back and the blood oh, came in there. Make sure it's still in there. Uh. Kevin is a maestro with the syringe, which is important because the jugular is a dangerous place to inject. One slip and you could do some serious damage. And here we go. Too fast. Okay. Sheffy is lying on the linoleum. Kevin has pulled a chair into the room. Reaching down, he gently aligns Sheffy's head. He runs a finger along the protruding neck vein, slides the needle in, and pulls the plunger back. Just a touch. A red flag of blood blooms in the syringe. Some people just keep going, and it's wasting person's um, hit. And in the, in the neck is the most dangerous spot, so you gotta make sure you stop. Kevin's a fairly big guy. Sheffy is smaller. And something about the way that Kevin is cradling Sheffy's head looks very tender. Okay, okay, take your breath, take a second. Okay, go. Kevin discards the used needle into a sharps box and cleans up. Everyone is just kind of looking at Sheffy lying on the ground. Are you all right? Yeah. Well, you get up. You got company here. Make us look bad. Make us look bad. Fucking. Uh, How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling good. Actually, I'm feeling really good. We better get up. what's up? Kevin and I help Sheffy up onto his feet. He looks at us and smiles. Hold on, 
Right now, much of North America's drug supply is toxic, contaminated with fentanyl and other even stronger synthetic opioids. Hundreds of people died from overdose last year in this city, but no one died in this room. No one has ever died in this room. My name's Boomer, Boomer B, and uh, I'm at Vandu, uh, Vandu's OPS desk. It's the lowest paying stipended job on the, on the lot, and I love it that way. Boomer works just down the hall from Kevin and Sheffy. I've known him for a couple of years. He's a friendly guy in his mid-50s. He wears glasses and a beige Kangol cap. Boomer's job at Vandu is to do the intake. Uh, You've got to sign in people, right? Like, what do, you got, what do you got going on there? Well, they give us their handles. It's their handles or their names, right? Um, so we write down their handles. We've got a lot of handles here, like uh, TJ, B- Baby Sue, Robin Williams. A lot of people like to claim famous what's, what's, names. What's Robin Williams doing today, does it say? Robin Williams is probably sleeping back there, but uh, he does down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's how it works. People come into Vandu and they walk up to Boomer. They tell him what drug they're doing. Boomer's job is to let them in and make sure there's never more than six people in the room. Hello, Wu-Tang, you're here. Wu-Tang is in the house. Okay, uh, there's one seat left and you're it. Okay, so uh, I fill out Wu-Tang's name, which is easy because I love Wu-Tang. Well, the van. <laughs> I just put up with Wu-Tang the man. <laughs> I myself have never crossed that line to actually naloxoning somebody. Because at the desk, it's not our responsibility, right? It's the attendant's responsibility. I'm a bit of like deer in the headlights when it comes to uh, poking people with needles of any sort. I don't like to do needles myself. I don't do down. But I, I am a hardcore drug addict. I, like to, I do crack. I do. If it smokes, I burn it, right? Yeah, you smoke. Drugs. I'm a smoker, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boomer was born in Nova Scotia in the early 60s. Bad government policy has had an impact on his life from the start. I, I, I grew up in the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children. Uh, it, it was actually a, a, a black orphanage for, for, for black kids. The government just uh, put us like in the back of Nova Scotia like a you know, pack of mushrooms and just left us to our own devices. This was a pretty nasty place. In 2014, the province apologized for the abuse and neglect under its watch. They paid out a multi-million dollar settlement and Boomer got a tiny bit of it. I wanted to do a lot of things. I wanted to be an artist. I uh, applied, applied at the Nova Scotia College for, of Art and Design. They wanted a positive picture and a negative picture. So I drew a hand with a finger. I drew a hand with a peace sign. Uh, they didn't accept it. I think I was too immature at the time. and It was just simple sketches. Uh, I ended up being a journeyman uh, steel set framer. Sometimes I'd drag myself in. It would be like tunnel vision. Uh, I'd, you know, up all night, up for a couple days. I'd be working, but it'd be like I was on another planet watching myself work, right? Because I'd be working through sleep deprivation and, and, and you know, going four hours without a hoot. But um, that's the point where I realized I had to choose between the drugs or the job, right? 
Boomer says he was actually good at being homeless. He had a knack for finding abandoned houses to crash in, like this one place in Calgary. When I went into it, it was old, an old characteristic uh, Canadian building, and I went downstairs, and there was, it was a stage for a band, and it said Rock Central. And obviously it was for a rock band from the 60s, eh? But I said, this is the new Rock Central, right? <laughs> so, yeah, mean it now. It's crazy. Uh, first time I had, well, I had relations with a lady there. We, we did it on the coach, and we both we both were complaining about the cold. But uh, you know, after that, I realized there's propane in the stove. We should have done this in the kitchen. Right? So, <laughs> it was so insane. Yeah, no electricity, but the propane still worked. It was awesome. So yeah, I've always had surprises like that in every abandoned house I come to. Right? In 2007, Boomer's friend jacked a van from one of her Johns, and they set out from Calgary, headed west to Vancouver. They had a Great Dane and a rifle in the van, but they didn't get very far. They parted company, and Boomer had to hitch the rest of the way. And, um, I mean, when I first came here, my, my first image of Vancouver was a girl doing her hit and wiping her arm on a telephone pole. That's my image of first coming to Vancouver. Do you remember the first time you ever came in this building here? Gosh, you know, I, I really don't. Uh, I, I do remember... I used to avoid this place, though, because uh, I'm a chronic depressive, right? So I'd mostly stay home. I'd mostly stay home, do my drugs, stay home. But then uh, at one point, I, I really got bored with myself, right? I said, you know, i got to go and do something. And I always know that, I always remember that Van Du was there giving us uh, education uh, um, programs and handing out crack pipes. I always remember the crack pipe part. Gradually, the community started to mean more and more to Boomer. He remembers one day his buddy died, and Van Du held a vigil. Boomer decided to stand up and talk. I lit up a 20 rock in a pipe, and I, I lit it right in front of the, the whole group. I said, this is dedicated to Ronnie, man, and everybody clapped and stood up. And I, I just did it on the spur of the moment, right, because uh, that's what he was about, right? And that's what I'm about, right? And that's how he lived, that's how he died, right? And you gotta honor that, right? That was kind of a turning point for Boomer. He got into organizing, started going on marches, and eventually decided to work the front desk. I really, I really felt a connection, right? I really felt a connection between the living, between the dead, between the people who were surviving and struggling and the people who were, who were just here to, to help support, right? I felt a, a kinship, as it were. What's your handle, dear? Zozo. Yeah, Zozo, of course. No one famous, but definitely. And she gave me a thumbs down, so I... I, I equate that with down. So I put a zero. You have to be able to relate to the people that come through here. Now, I, I relate to a lot of their issues, a lot of their anger, a lot of their problems, and a lot of their needs, eh? This is as close to a family as I'm going to get, and I, I enjoy it. Here's what I remember about Vancouver before Van Du. There were so many unsafe injection sites. I used an empty apartment in my dealer's building, or a McDonald's bathroom, or a squatted warehouse. Health authorities wouldn't give us new syringes, because they said it would only encourage us to use more drugs. One time, I had the same syringe for an entire month. It got dull, so I sharpened it on a matchbook. I drove that month-old, dull-ass spike through my increasingly thick layers of scar tissue on my arm. I carried it in my boot, 
because the cops would do you for drug paraphernalia. One time, a cop put on his gloves and patted me down. I'll fuck you up if I get stuck by a needle, he said. So I told him where it was, and he took it away. This happened to everybody. Sometimes they'd even charge people. So me and my buddy hatched a plan. He hustled down to the drugstore, and he told the pharmacist that he was sent to buy insulin syringes for his diabetic dad. I played the dad. Call him if you want, my buddy said, and the pharmacist did. Yeah, that's right. He's a good lad, I said. What type of diabetes do you have? The pharmacist asked. Uh, I have the really bad type, like type omega, I offered. I had no clue, and we got no syringes. HIV and hep C spread like wildfire back then. Vancouver had the worst HIV transmission rates in the industrialized world. Eventually, officials were pressured into doing something, but they still had these arbitrary and messed up rules. At the first needle exchange, I'd roll up my sleeve and show them my track marks to prove I was a drug user. And I'd give over my old spike for a new one. If you didn't have an old needle for them, they'd just turn you away. This kind of needle withholding kills people. And this one-for-one -one policy remains standard practice in many places across North America. It's even worse in most places in the U.S. They don't give out needles at all. Does it sound good, Sam? Um, I guess we should start by asking Anne, can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Anne Livingston. I uh, lived in the downtown east side since 1993. Anne Livingston's been in the mix for 25 years. I remember her from demonstrations and meetings back in the day. You know, I live at Four Sisters Housing Co-op. I moved in in 93, and I was in the high-rise, which is right next to the fire hall. So it's sirens, 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 and then everywhere there were people standing around. Anne says that in the 90s, activists, some who used drugs and some who didn't, had an idea. They were going to start a union of drug users. That Those first early meetings were held in my living room, and... What I would do is just be this busy, harassed mother, and then suddenly I'd go, oh my God, there's a meeting at five. And then I'd throw in the cookies, so I'd always show up with the cookies still hot. It was funny because when I looked back on it, I realized that the cookies were a really important part of this because those guys had never been invited into anyone's home. You know what I mean? What I remember about Anne from those early days was her flip chart. Anne would take this giant pad of paper the kind that's in pretty much every meeting room or classroom. And she would ask the group what they were dealing with. Someone would tell her, the cops are sadistic down here, or I have nowhere to sleep. And she'd write it down in big letters so that everyone could see they were heard. I learned that habit from her, and I've been carrying around markers with me ever since. If you just take notes from people, they'll start telling you stuff. It doesn't take much. That's why you get this emotion. People cry. Um, you get... Um, people disclosing being sexually assaulted when they were children and no one had ever asked their opinions about anything. No one had ever written down what they thought. And so as Anne took notes, people would talk more and more and they seemed to be getting more confident. And you know, before that you're like, the reason they grow poppies in Afghanistan is because I'm a useless junkie and everyone hates me, to I'm a community volunteer and I fucking make a difference down here. And you know what I mean? Like honestly, it's true. Eventually, the drug user union 
Vandu, got a couple of small grants. They used the money to rent a storefront and spread the word that the space was going to be a kind of drop-in center for drug users. They held revolutionary political reading groups there. They planned rallies and they took care of people who needed help. Every single person coming in is saying, I got a piece of needle stuck in my arm. The cops did this to me. I've got um, mace in my ear and it's all burning. Um, and I turned my face away and I was injecting right when they maced me. And we just went, this is fucking nuts. My name is Thomas Kerr and I'm a professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia and uh, a senior scientist at the BC Centre on Substance Use. Back in the early 2000s, Thomas was a frontline healthcare worker. He was writing a proposal for Canada's first supervised injection site. He'd worked out a budget down to the last Band-Aid and even come up with a floor plan. This wasn't just a theoretical thing. There was an application into Health Canada. People thought it was just a matter of time. But whenever it seemed like it was just about to go through, when it was getting so close, there'd be a new bureaucratic roadblock of some kind. So Thomas, I remember that time, and some, and there was kind of these, I wouldn't say they were hostile, but there were two camps or two threads, probably more than that, coming up, and there was like the, look, we're doing it by the books. This is a pathway to opening this eventually. And then there was the people around Van Du who were like too impatient for it, and we just got to do it. Did you feel that tension? Were you, were you kind of caught in the fray of that? Absolutely. <laughs> it was really, really difficult. Um, one side wanted to do it more by the book, and then other people just wanting to do direct action. And, you know, lots of, lots of sparks flew over that. I remember um, getting quite an earful from uh, my, my friend Ann Livingston at the time about, uh, you know, this being, um, you know, a waste of time trying to do all this uh, insider lobbying. We need people with the courage to, to actually do something. So that argument you had with Anne before you got on the same page, well, do you remember where, like, where that would have taken place? No, but I don't think it was an argument. I think it was just me uh, <laughs> getting, dressed down. getting shit kicked pretty hard. <laughs> Anne and Van Du were like, what's the point in waiting? They already had the storefront. People were dying from overdoses. They were sharing needles. They were using with shitty gear and scarring up their arms. So Vandu started to come up with their plan, open a totally unsanctioned supervised injection facility. You know, it's like a swimming pool. There's, there's uh, lifeguards and you will do as you're told and we're not gonna lose any lives here, but it's to have fun. You're here to do something, you know what I mean? You're here doing something that's a recreational thing. It should have music and fucking like you hang out. If you got no dope and you're not doing dope, you could still go there and meet your friends. It's gotta be a social scene. On April 7th, 2003, Vancouver police launch a major crackdown on drug users. 44 new cops march onto the downtown east side. The Coalition for Harm Reduction holds an emergency meeting. Van Du, a housing action committee, a progressive law firm, and other groups are there. Everyone is pissed about the crackdown. And so, that very night, they open a totally unsanctioned safe injection site. It's a back room located at 327 Carroll Street. There are two small tables, a registered nurse, and some volunteers who had been trained in CPR. Everyone was doing speedballs then. That's when it was so popular. Oh, yeah. They called this one girl Boogie. And she had, and I used to look at her and think, I think I know how it feels to do cocaine and heroin together. Because she'd be like, just kind of like, you know, up and down. Like it was very 
very pleasant. So she, you know what I mean? Just like a, and she would dance. That's why they called her Boogie because she was always moving. And it was a really scary time because the police were really running around chasing people out and, you know, busting heads and, and uh, people fled. Um, it was the weirdest time because I had never seen the streets of the downtown east side so quiet, um, especially in the evenings. But of course, there was vulnerable people who were homeless and they needed somewhere to go. Uh, they need somewhere to, to hide from the police. And um, so, you know, many... You're saying like an illegal safe injection site is also a place where people can hide from a police crackdown. Absolutely. And when you walked into Carroll Street, much that's much of what it was. It was this bare bones facility with a lot of people just hanging out because they had nowhere to go and they were afraid to go out, especially in the, in the nighttime hours. 327 Carroll was open seven days a week from 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. People could come in and use the washroom, drink some coffee. And if you shot up there, you could get some water, a filter and a spoon. But most importantly, you could get a clean needle. And that meant that they needed lots and lots of clean needles. Um, you know, I mean, essentially, the people who were organizing it made very clear that they needed supplies. And I know that there were some um, very supportive and courageous healthcare providers who were bringing medical supplies, you know, to the to this um so site. Tell, tell me about that. You were one of those people, right? You, uh, you, you I stole, might have been. You stole medical supplies. You stole medical supplies to bring to people. Uh, I have no comment. Can <laughs> can we say redistribute instead of steal? Um, because okay, let's. So, so so Thomas, you liberated and redistributed um, clean new syringes for people to use. Liberation and redistribution is is a concept I can live with. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to admit to stealing on this podcast. And well, What was the moment? Do you remember like a night where you're just like, fuck it, I got to do this. And when you're leaving some office or some place, you're just like, this box is coming with me. You're really asking for a lot of disclosure around this. Well, only what you're, only what you're comfortable with. But look, to be honest, we're trying to give other people who are listening the courage to do the same sort of thing. Yeah. There's a lot of doctors that listen to our podcast. I want them to break the fucking law. When the law is wrong, I want people to resist the law. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what people did. And I would encourage people to take those kinds of actions when it's needed. Don't get me wrong. This is a tall order. The cops weren't exactly happy about this place. Here's how one volunteer remembers it. They said, quote, on a nightly basis, the people who both access and volunteer at the safe injection site are subject to police harassment. They park their cruisers directly in front of the door. They walk their drug dogs in front of the site, and they drive their motorcycles on the sidewalk. So the cops knock on the door, and they're on bicycles. And I answer the door in a dress, and I say, hi, and they say, we heard that um, uh, you have a, I don't know what they called it, some project here for drug users. And I said, yes, just one moment. Just wait right here. Then I let them in. The cops kept harassing people, but they never just rolled in and shut the site down. The truth is that a lot of activists were itching for a fight. They were like, come on, arrest us for doing this. Bring it on. We can fight this all the way to the Supreme Court. Vandu even held a press conference and told the world what we were doing. 
someone comes up to me and says, but isn't it illegal? And I said, I'm pretty sure it's illegal to let people die in alleys. I challenge anyone in the world to show me a place that has an injection site that didn't have an illegal one first. That's fine. Go ahead. Just honestly, my mind is open. Only doing this for 25 years, I might have overlooked a place. In the fall of 2003, Vancouver opened the first legal supervised injection facility in North America. It was called Insight. It's hard to describe how important this was. It was a genuine victory. And none of this could have happened without politically organized drug users. If you do not have an on-the-ground fucking user group that meets every week with someone taking notes, listening to the people, if you don't view it that way, you're going to fail. You know? So your advice to people in other jurisdictions is organize. And I, I agree. It's and def- not, not the guys. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the guys with master's degrees. I'm telling you that they're lovely. But I mean the guys that are the most likely the guy, that are fucking, you know, the front lines. If you don't organize on the front lines, you won't get soldiers. You'll get people who want to go to conferences and sit in rooms and be consulted and charge money for it. Just three weeks after Insight opened, the coalition decided to close down the unsanctioned place on Carroll Street. It had been running for 181 days. During that time, they'd supervised more than 3,000 injections. Most of the work had been done for next to no money. Insight was supposed to be just a pilot project, one of many, but the conservative government fought any kind of expansion and even tried to shut it down. And that left a lot of people with nowhere to go. Sometimes there was a half-hour wait to get inside. And when you're really dope-sick, that's too long. There was also another problem. So I want to take us back first to 2011. Can you tell me what what were things like back then? Yeah, so 2011, I'm a PhD student. I'm working at the Urban Health Research Initiative uh, with Thomas Kerr, who had led the, uh, the insight evaluation. This is Ryan our scientific advisor. Back then, he and Thomas Kerr were both really interested in assisted injections. At 327 Carroll Street, staff would help people shoot up when they needed it. But when Insight opened, that wasn't allowed by Health Canada. There's near a decade of research at that point pointing to the fact that people who need help injecting are effectively the most vulnerable people who use drugs in Vancouver. They have higher rates of HIV and hepatitis C transmission. They're more likely to experience violence than anybody else, and in particular, sexual violence. No shit. I've seen this a lot. I especially remember this one guy, shaved head and bomber jacket. His girlfriend didn't know how to fix, so he'd hold that over her. Back in 2011, you'd see people wandering the alleys, looking for someone to help them inject. Can you explain what a hit doctor is for people? Yeah, sure. A hit doctor is someone who, within the broader community of people who inject drugs, is regarded as someone who is capable of fixing other people. By fix, Thomas means injecting. It's a real skill. These individuals are often sought out by other people who have difficulty uh, accessing veins or people who prefer uh, juggler injection, for example. 
we know that in the Vancouver Injection Drug User Study that about one-third of participants say that at some point in the previous six months they needed assistance with injecting. There was this woman whose partner had been arrested and she was blind and unable to self-administer injections. So she was always effectively injected by her partner, and after he was arrested, she was thrown into chaos. So she's going out into alleyways, trying to find people to help her inject. She's going into some of the, the most unsafe parts of our local drug scene, trying to get help and doing so while so vulnerable. She ended up being assaulted, and Van Du effectively settled on, you know what, this is fucked. And so Vandu opens a new room, and they tell people, we'll help you inject here. They also ask Thomas and Ryan to check out what they're up to. Imagine a younger, more nervous Ryan. At that time, he hadn't really spent much time around places like Vandu, and he was just trying to fit in. I mean, I, I think it was my first or second day doing field work there, and I'm leaving at the end of the day, and the door is faulty, and I open the door and literally, like, knock the front door off of Vandu. And, you know, people start giving me shit, but in a super good-natured way. And I was like, yeah, you know what? You should be giving me shit. But it kind of pointed to, I mean, it was a space where I was welcome. Oh, yeah, you should, the work you, that I was doing was you welcome. should worry when people stop teasing you. Yeah, no, exactly, right? So Ryan would come back to Vandu almost every day. People told him they used to try to inject themselves at Insight, but they couldn't get it to work. And so they'd go out and look for a hit doctor instead. Sometimes they'd get beat up or ripped off. But that didn't happen here. So, you know, on a day-to-day basis, that meant something like someone saying, well, I can show up here in the morning, late afternoon and evening. I know there's someone there to help me. And I can go about planning the rest of my day and doing all of the other things that I need to. Overdose concerns aren't even primarily what drive people's access to supervised injecting sites or overdose prevention sites. It's all of these other things that are critical in shaping their day-to-day lives. It's, I'm going there because I don't want to get, you know, jacked up by the police. I'm going there because I don't want to have to pop into that alleyway to inject because the last time I did, maybe someone ripped me off. It's... Well, I want to go into that space, but I also want all of the social connections that happen as I I get to interact with people in a space where I don't actually have to worry about all these other things. Ryan and Thomas noticed something else as well. People seem to trust drug users who are running the room. They've got cred. So it wouldn't be unusual that someone would come in with, you know, a a significant amount of... um, down that they wanted to be able to inject and the person providing them with that help would be like you know what maybe let's have your dose you know let's get a sense of this let's not inject it all at once and I have to say that's not something that would happen were that happening in an alleyway. We've evaluated so many Vandu led interventions as well as interventions led by drug users in Thailand and elsewhere And we just hear the same story over and over and over again, that for many people who use drugs, going into an environment led by peers is more comfortable for them. Um, They're much more willing to engage with someone who the thing we always hear is, you know, walked a mile in their shoes. If we really look at the evidence, 
what we have is a very potent form of intervention um, sitting right here in our community. And I think we should be doing more to support that. A backlash was brewing. In 2013, Prime Minister Stephen Harper was leading the charge. In fact, a fundraising letter to conservative supporters started like this. Do you want a supervised drug consumption site in your community? These are facilities where drug addicts get to shoot up heroin and other illicit drugs. I don't want one anywhere near my home. We've had enough. Not long after, Vancouver Coastal Health, the local health authority, told Vandu to close the injection room. They said, quote, failure to cease activity will force us to review our funding contract with Vandu. Nobody at Vandu wanted to close the room, but if their funding got cut off, that could end their whole organization. So they had no choice. So not long after the room closed, I'm kind of out about the downtown east side doing ethnographic field work and I'm cutting up alleyways and, you know, there's something that I hadn't seen in a, a while, which was someone wandering up an alleyway trying to find someone to help them inject. So instead of being able to go to a place like Vandu, get that help, get support in an environment where people could respond in the event of an overdose and they could be safe, they're pushed right back to the alleyways. But we never gave up. We opened other unsanctioned sites. We went into the alleys and set up tents. And in 2016, when the government finally woke up to the fact that we're in the middle of an overdose crisis, we reopened the injection room at Vandu. What what lesson can we take from from all of this? That here is a you know safe injection site that was illegal, and there's lots of places where there's local mayors or maybe a, a premier of a province or or you know senators or whatever that don't want this to happen. Is there something we can learn that people can do? Yeah, I mean, so I think certainly one of the lessons here is where possible, folks can just open them up. Like, I mean, like without without permission, without legal sanction. So that's something that we know it's happening across North America right now. And in lots of cities, these things can be opened rapidly. They can meet the needs of folks in their community and attract people who have an incredibly high risk of overdose. Why are you going to wait to open something that can be critical and life-saving in the middle of a crisis? And were this any other intervention for any other population... Folks opening these would be celebrated as heroes. We would be moving heaven and earth to open them. Everywhere the crisis is touched, there's people who want to open a safe injection site. Right now, there are fights to open sites in cities like San Francisco, New York, Seattle, Boston, and Philadelphia. But the U.S. Deputy Attorney General threatened anybody who tries. Quote, violations are punishable by up to 20 years in prison. In Ontario, Premier Doug Ford said that he's dead against safe injection sites. He restricted any more from opening, even while overdoses are surging in Canada's largest province. In Alberta, opposition leader Jason Kenney said, helping addicts inject poison into their bodies is not a solution to the problem of addiction.
Harper, Ford, Kenny, and Trump's deputy AG. These are all the same kind of guys. The backlash brethren can be found everywhere, in cities and towns, among big developers, business improvement associations, homeowner groups, and just randos, like some asshole who spread a bunch of manure in front of the Ottawa overdose prevention tent in 2017. If you're an activist, you already know that nothing ever comes by waiting for permission. People have been opening underground sites for years. We don't want to blow up their spots, so we're not naming them here, but we know who you are. Fucking heroes. If there's no overdose prevention site where you are, consider opening your own. Organize. Get supplies. Pick a location. When you meet the neighbors, bring a muffin basket. You're going to need some allies, like lawyers, nurses, and academics. And you got to know the legal risks. But the important thing is that we open these things up and start saving lives. People need a space to survive. So we parked for two hours. We'll I'm be- sick. I fucking hate the sun. And Anne Livingston is giving us <laughs> bad directions to a place that we've never been. <laughs> yeah. Kiri. That's the one she said. Yeah, to either take a left or a right onto. <laughs> Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Check out This Tent Saves Lives, How to Open an Overdose Prevention Site. It was written by people who've done this. The link is at crackdownpod.com. There will be demonstrations in cities across Canada on April 16th. It's a national day of action on the overdose crisis. Um. Crackdown's editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and Cherise Kiwat. R.I.P. Cherise. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter, at Garth Mullins. Crackdown is produced by Alexander Kim, Lisa Hale, Sam Finn, and Gordon Caddick. This month, our lead producer was Sam Finn. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil, lead of the qualitative and community-based research program of the BC Centre on Substance Use. Ryan is also an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. The music in this episode was written and performed by Sam Fenn, Jacob Dryden, Kai Paulson, and me. Crackdown's theme song was written by Sam and I, with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you get podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We're also on the radio on CITR and Co-op Radio in Vancouver. Follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. 
Our website is crackdownpod.com. Email info at crackdownpod.com. A new episode drops on the last Wednesday of every month. Unless, of course, the whole team gets sick again. Then we might be a day or two late. See you next month. But wait. Anne says she's on Columbia Street. Right? Yeah. So. Some, there's some fucking Lord of the Rings reference here, but I'm too tired to <laughs> reach for it. I've never been like a Lord of the Rings guy. Me neither. What about like, um, like the Christian ones, like the Chronicles of Narnia? Those were very popular. Did you ever read those ones? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when I yeah. was a kid, I think. Yeah. I liked those as a kid. Made me think Turkish Delight sounded like something I should check out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh my god. I definitely had that the experience. The guy was addicted to Turkish Delight. <laughs> yeah, the guy ate so much of it. And right. I, didn't, I didn't think that as a cautionary tale to watch out. I was right. like, oh man, I gotta try something. Gotta try it, yeah. <laughs> oh, right here. Yeah, Sapperton Station. Yeah. So that's not right. Nope. Okay. You have been listening to a sided media production. C I D E D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.